Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello. Thank you for joining me this Tuesday, December 20th. It is great to be back. Uh, I noticed that a lot of people on Twitter were wondering where the heck I had gotten to. Uh, I had my third bout of COVID. I uh, tested positive Wednesday morning. I did the show on Wednesday, um, but it was getting a little difficult as time wore on. So I um, have taken a few days off to rest and relax and take Paxlovid for the first time. I'm a, I'm a little raspy today, but I'm, I've got plenty of cough drops here. I've got water. <clears throat> and if I get too, if I get too weird and raspy, well, then I guess Andy will just <laughs> start talking. So Andy, you know, if, if I just drop over here on the mic, you just be ready to step right in and, I'm sure it'll be I'm sure it'll absolutely be be wonderful. Who knows? Maybe you'll like it better. Anyway, here's what I learned. Um, First of all, somebody um, because I was obviously uh, checking social media last night. Somebody tweeted to me um, because I had posted that I had COVID. Oh, I guess you're not so big on vaccines now. And I'm thinking to myself, honey, honey, you don't understand what we get out of the vaccine and how it works. The bottom line is, yes, I am thrilled that I am double vaxxed and multi-boosted and I got the bivalent. You know why? Because I've had COVID three times and I haven't been in the hospital and I haven't been on a ventilator. And by the way, I haven't died. The vaccine isn't going to prevent you from getting covid if somebody with COVID is up close and personal, breathing their little viri into your nose and mouth. That's not the vaccine. It's not like measles where you get the vaccine and then you're never supposed to have measles. And by the way, my daughter was vaccinated for chickenpox and within a week or two was exposed to chickenpox and she got chickenpox. But you know what? She had when I had chicken pox, and I had it as an adult, which is not good, I mean, they were all over. I had chicken pox inside my ears, okay? They were everywhere. My daughter, after being vaccinated, got chicken pox. In her entire body, she had four chicken pox, four little poxies over her entire body. That's what a vaccine does. And, yeah, you know, mumps, measles, chickenpox, none of those vaccines were around when I was little. So I got all those glorious diseases. So the vaccine isn't a guarantee that you will never get the illness. It is protection for your immune system. Give your immune system a little extra get up and go. So that when you get the illness or if you get the illness, you are not devastated. Hey, I'm old and I have I'm, I don't have like diabetes or comorbidities like that. But I have an immune system that's never 100 percent bounced back from chemo. OK, it's not bad enough 
that we need to do anything about it, but it's not up to snuff 110% or even 100%, probably not even 90%. So I'm one of those people who would get COVID and end up in the hospital. And I've had it three times and I have not. I almost didn't even take a test because first I just thought I had a sinus infection. Then it kind of felt like a head cold. And that's not the way COVID, this must have been, I must have been hit with a new strain compared to what I had before because that's not how my symptoms presented presented before. I almost didn't take a test, but Ray was feeling sicker than me and he took a test and he had it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this sore throat and this stuffy nose and this drippy nose, maybe there's more to it than meets the eye. And uh, sure enough, there was. I did have COVID. And by the way, you know, Ray was talking to a friend of his who's based in London. The guy has had COVID five times. So lest you think that three times for me and Ray is an outlier, you know, this is what they mean. This is what Dr. Fauci means when he said going forward, COVID would be endemic. It's not going to go away. It is always going to be with us. Hopefully, we will all build up a tolerance to it. Hopefully, we will all get these new vaccinations as they become available, just like a flu shot. A flu shot isn't a 100% guarantee that you won't get the flu. It's a guarantee that you will have a milder case of it. And yes, I know people, there's like so many different strains of flu. And they, the people who put together our flu shots, they look at what's happening in flu season in Australia, New Zealand, what kinds of strains they have. And generally, those are what they put in our mix. You get inoculated against certain strains of flu, but not every strain, because there are gazillions of them. And this year, we picked pretty well, because the flu that is erupting is something that the flu shot was designed to soften. Oh, and a word about Paxlovid. I'd never taken it before. And, um, you know, nobody had told me what to expect. And um, first of all, it's two pills in the morning and two pills at night for five days. And they're they're good sized suckers. I mean, they're uh, they're close to being horse pills, in my humble opinion. And um, the first time I took it. And I, I don't know, I guess I just thought it would be like an ibuprofen. You know, you take it, beep, and then a little while later, you start to feel better. It tastes so horrible. So horrible. It has a really strong, like, chemical taste. And I thought, well, that's my bad. You know, I shouldn't have... Kept it in my mouth so long, so the next time I took it, and the taste lasted like hours and hours and hours. So the next time I took it, I like threw the pills at the back of my throat so they wouldn't touch my tongue and swallowed them with as much water as I could get down. And you know what? 20, 30 minutes later, my mouth still had that chemical taste. 
it's a function of the drug, not that it's it's not a function of, oh, you let it dissolve on your tongue, therefore your mouth tastes terrible. Just like if you take an ibuprofen, whether you have pain in your shoulder or pain in your foot, the ibuprofen goes everywhere. Well, the Paxlovid goes everywhere, including to your mouth. And I'm telling you, the chemical taste is horrific. It is really strong. And there's doesn't you can't get rid of it. I tried chewing peppermint gum. First of all, it made the gum taste like it was black licorice, which was very weird. But it didn't it didn't work because it's like the 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 taste is coming out from inside your body. It's not something on the surface that you can brush your teeth away or Listerine away. The other thing I would tell you if you take Paxlovid is take it with food because uh, it was pretty rough on the tummy. Um, it almost almost felt achy, burny. Um, so take it with food. And, you know, you may not you may not be able to do much about the morning dose, but at night, what I ended up doing was I would literally take it right before I was ready to shut off the light and go to sleep so that hopefully most of the chemical taste in my mouth would be gone by morning. Honestly, it reminded me of chemo because the taste in your mouth, for me anyway, was so strong that it felt like I had an upset stomach a little bit nauseated the whole time. Really, uh, on the second day, I wasn't even sure I could finish the prescription. And it's only five days. Because it was just, I just felt so yucky. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it distracts you from the COVID. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, it does work. Your symptoms do resolve pretty darn quick when you take the Paxlovid. I'm just saying it is not completely innocuous. And just, you know, nobody ever told me what I was getting into, so I'm warning you. Would I, if I got COVID again, would I take it? Honestly, I think it would depend on how bad my symptoms were, to be honest. If I felt like I had just like a really mild head cold, I probably would take a pass. If I felt a little sicker than that, then I would just be a grown-up, suck it up, and do it again. So, so yes, Mr. Whoever you were who tweeted at me, I am glad that I am multivaxxed. I'm very glad of that because I think COVID's going to be around for a long time. And, you know, Ray and I know where we got it. We went to a family birthday party that, in retrospect, turned out to be a super spreader event. Uh, in two, three days, almost half the people there. Test, we're testing positive. So am I going to stay home for the rest of my life? No, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to live that way. Am I putting myself at risk? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I am. But, you know, I think I'm also putting, if I, if I get scared and stay home all the time, that's no good for my mental health. So, as all the experts say, you know, you got to be smart. You got to be a trade off. I heard um, a doctor on CNN this morning saying, look, look at it this way. Let's say next week. OK, this is Tuesday. Let's say next week, Monday, there's some really big thing that you just are dying to go to some important event, whether it's a wedding or just out to dinner or whatever it is. 
she said, you know, for the for four or five days before a big event, maybe then you be careful. Maybe then you stay home those those nights and don't go out and get exposed so that you can make your big event. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Dr. Fauci was interviewed on MSNBC last week, and um, he talked about how, you know, we're really in the throes of it. It is it is a it has not been a good fall. Doesn't look like it's going to be a good winter for these um, covid and respiratory viruses. He also said he was concerned that more people were not getting the new bivalent vaccine. Um, if, and if you've got that handy, let's play that clip from Dr. Fauci on MSNBC now. When we approach the end of the year holiday season, people congregate indoors. There's going to be an uptick in infections and with that, an uptick in hospitalizations and even deaths. We have the wherewithal and the tools to mitigate against that. We have covid vaccines. We have the booster that you spoke about that only 13 percent of the eligible population is utilizing that booster. That is unacceptable. We've got to do better than that. And you're right. We do have other infections now. We have a very sharp spike, almost a vertical spike in influenza. And we have a good influenza vaccine that's well matched to this circulating strain of influenza. So we're trying to get the population to appreciate that we have the tools to protect us. Yes. Oh, and that super spreader event that I was at, my in-laws, my father-in-law is 90 and his wife is, I think, a year or two younger. They both got it. And they're both today testing negative and neither of them got real sick. They felt like they had bad colds, but that was it. So, yeah, I'm glad I'm vaccinated and I know they're glad they're vaccinated as well. You're probably wondering um, when I'm going to get around to talking about the January 6th stuff. Well, you're in luck. Um, We're going to talk about it when we come right back after a break. But I want to tell you that um, we're going to spend the first hour up until 3 o'clock. Well, actually, even after 3 o'clock, because we're going to be talking to um, Professor William Muck, who's a political science professor about January 6th as well. So um, we are going to open up the phone lines, 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. We're opening up those phone lines and um, going to be taking your calls probably for at least the first couple hours today. So. Uh, we're going to take a break and get to it right after this. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So, I was... um Lounging on the couch, t- uh, entertaining myself with uh, this January sixth hearing, and um, I thought there were all so there was so much of it. First of all, it was their final public hearing was every bit as compelling 
as every other time they have taken to the airwaves. Just, just absolutely, utterly amazing. And it was interesting because, you know, a few months ago, it leaked out that there was some disagreement on the committee, maybe more than just a few months ago, several months ago, that they couldn't decide whether or not they were obviously going to share their information with the Department of Justice, but they couldn't decide. They hadn't decided. There was some disagreement about whether or not they should actually recommend certain specific charges be brought. There was apparently some disagreement about that. Some disagreement about that that clearly was resolved because charges they did bring. And I wonder, this is just my own little aside here. I wonder if now that Jack Smith has been brought in, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor that Merrick Garland dumped all this on, Jack Smith, who is reportedly not afraid to take on anybody. I wonder if this was just simply a way to keep the pressure on the DOJ, because I think Merrick Garland's DOJ is weak. Is Merrick Garland, I'm, I'm sure he's a fine, he was a fine judge, but he is not a prosecutor. He hasn't been a prosecutor for a long time, and clearly that skill set has left him. And I think that the fact that the committee went ahead and recommended charges was simply as much about keeping the pressure up on DOJ to do some damn thing and not giving them a pass. Because they could have said, you know, we're giving them all the information, see what they do with it. No. They said, we're giving them all the information, and we feel that there are at least four clear-cut charges that need to be brought against Donald Trump. This is what they, these are the charges they, that they say are criminal offenses that Donald Trump should be charged with. Number one, obstruction of an official proceeding. Number two, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Three, conspiracy to make a false statement. And four, insurrection. The January 6th committee said that they are also referring Four Republican House members who refuse to cooperate with them. They are referring them to the House Ethics Committee, where they hope they will be censured. What does that mean? I guess it means they have a demerit on their permanent record going forward. Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, the potential speaker, maybe, maybe not. Jim Jordan the potential new head of the Judiciary Committee, God help us, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania and Andy Biggs of Arizona. Andy Biggs, who is, of course, um, declared that he wants to be the next Speaker of the House, though he only has the votes of the crazies. So he definitely doesn't have enough votes to become Speaker. He just has enough votes to be to make Kevin McCarthy's life very, 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 very difficult. So the committee um, said, here are the charges. Here are the people we want to censure. And hey, DOJ, 
you know what? One of the things we want to tell you is here's what we think. But, you know, there may be other people, you you know, you DOJ, you really should look into this. This would be a good thing for you to investigate, because even though we're saying Donald Trump's guilty of all of it, John Eastman's guilty of most of it, and that there are other people involved as well, because we were stonewalled by some of our own members, we're not sure we've gotten to the bottom of everything. And we're not sure that there aren't other people who are involved in this. I'm going to share with you some of the things the committee said when we come back after a break. But before that, Jamie Raskin was on MSNBC uh, with Joy Reid. And uh, Jamie Raskin told her why it was important that they do this, why it was important that it wouldn't be just foot soldiers being held accountable for what happened, but rather... Those who led, those who plotted, those who planned. Listen to this. The historians and the political scientists we've spoken to have been very clear about this. The surest sign of a successful coup coming is a recently failed coup where the coup plotters and insurrectionists got to diagram the weaknesses in the existing structure. And so if there's impunity, if they think they can operate with immunity and uh, under the cover of darkness, then they are undoubtedly going to come back again. So I think that everything we know about what's taken place around the world with coups and what's taken place historically tells us that there must be consequences and not just for the hundreds of foot soldiers who are already facing the music and many of whom have already been convicted or pled, pled guilty, but also for people all the way at the top, the masterminds and the ringleaders. Yeah. If we don't hold the big people at the top accountable in some way, this will happen again. That's why you heard both uh, John Dean and Jill Weinbanks on the 50th anniversary of Watergate. They both said that, well, at the time, it didn't seem like such a bad thing. They both now think that Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon and setting some kind of precedent that maybe if you're a president, you get out of jail free. That 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 indirectly led us to where we were with Donald Trump. We've got lots more to talk about. Um, we're going to get to it right after this. There's new information, explosive new information. It's how every day starts. The need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning, starting at six on WCPT eight twenty. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. We are getting ready to talk about January 6th and take your calls, 773-763-9278. By the way, you can also text me on that same number. And I want you to know um, right now the WCPT text line is sponsored by Camp Kupagani a multicultural camp for kids that celebrates diversity, equity, and inclusion. Same number as the live talk on the radio number, 773-763-WCPT. And you just heard um, the weather, the warning of the real cold and snow. I think, you know, you know, we've seen predictions of a snowpocalypse before and You know, most of the time it doesn't materialize. So I would like everyone within the sound of my voice 
to think positively that this is not going to happen. I think we can actually drive the cold away with our minds if we all focus on the same thing. It is not going to get super cold and it is not going to be a blizzard. Okay? Not going to be super cold, not going to be a blizzard. That is our mantra for the rest of the day. I know that we, you know, I know that we can make this happen. I do not, after just recovering from COVID and being ready to reemerge in the world, I do not want to be locked up again because of snow and cold. Uh, so January 6th, I was um, reading you the charges that um, the January 6th le- committee leveled. I want to start with, um, I'm going to get to your calls right after this, but I want to start, I'm going to play uh, Jamie Raskin reading all four of the charges, but I'm not going to do all four at once. I'm going to space it out. Now remember, uh, charge number one, excuse me, I have a lot of notes here, was obstruction of an official proceeding. Jamie Raskin uh, read the official legalese, but then he also explained exactly what they were talking about. So here's Jamie Raskin talking about charge number one. Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass. Mr. Chairman, as you know, our committee had the opportunity last spring to present much of our evidence to a federal judge, something that distinguishes our investigation from any other congressional investigation I can recall. In the context of resolving evidentiary privilege issues related to the crime fraud doctrine in the Eastman case, U.S. District Court Judge David Carter examined just a small subset of our evidence to determine whether it showed the likely commission of a federal offense. The judge concluded that both former President Donald Trump and John Eastman likely violated two federal criminal statutes. This is the starting point for our analysis today. The first criminal statute we invoke for referral, therefore, is Title 18, Section 1512C, which makes it unlawful for anyone to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding of the United States government. We believe that the evidence described by my colleagues today and assembled throughout our hearings warrants a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violations of this statute. Can't get much clearer than that. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Bobby's calling in from Indiana. Hey, Bob, how are you today? Um, Joan, uh, you have me rather concerned here the past several days. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about uh, that. I am. Um, I well, just I should have posted something, but I just wasn't <laughs> wasn't up to it. I was a uh, very uh, careful. Yeah, because. Uh, I've been popping too many of these micro pills already, so kind of go easy, you know. Yeah. But um, 
I want you to do me a huge favor, and I think I think you can handle it. Um, you and your family and all of the people there at the station, I want you to have a really fine holiday period. I think and, I'm up um, to that. Okay. Well, I thought I thought I could count on you with everybody. <laughs> Um, but as far as the, uh, what we heard the other day, I think, uh, basically if you boil it down, the, the January 6th, um, has just, uh, given the department of, uh, just justice, the obvious, and now they have to take the ball and do something serious with it. Yep. Yeah, and if, and if they don't, that I think will be almost as big of a knock against our democracy as what happened on January 6th. And my my I don't know a whole lot about this Jack Smith guy who Merrick Garland tapped to lead this investigation. But from what little I've read, he's supposed to be fair and fearless. He doesn't care what party you're from. Uh, he just cares about the facts and what's happened. And no matter who you are, if he feels that you have violated the law, he will bring charges and prosecute you. At least that seems to be the take on him from people who know him and have worked with him. So I think we just have to. We just have to hope that's true. Well, there's enough of the facts there. And if there aren't, I'm sure they can find enough to to pile on and uh if if trump and uh and the and the, the leaders of this uh uh boy i could think of other names to call it but you know what i'm talking about <laughs> sometimes it's hard to find a word that's not too nasty yeah yeah but if they if they if they get away with it i don't see it frankly a future for this country as it was at all yeah um you know i i agree with you and i think jamie raskin made the point when he was talking to joy reed on msnbc and it's something that all my listeners have talked about and i've talked about it can't just be the foot soldiers who are held accountable I mean, yeah, the Proud Boys, I think their trial starts, is it today? Hang on, let me look at my notes again. Um, yeah, um, the Proud Boys trial um, begins today, and it, they're being looked at for a seditious conspiracy for what they did on January 6th. But again, this is what we've seen around Trump time and time again. You know, the people around him get in trouble. Some of them end up going to jail. But, you know, it's like the higher up the food chain you get, the more protection there is. I mean, who knows? Roger Stone probably would have gone to jail if he hadn't finagled a pardon. Um, Mike Flynn, same thing. But um, that's what's that's what people are looking to see. They want to make sure that it isn't just the minions who are held accountable, but the people who planned it, the people who organized it, the people who egged those folks on, they need to be held accountable. 
And let's pray to God. Jack Smith uh, has the the backbone to do it. Well, that's where I'm putting what little money I have left. So uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and, uh, Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for the call. Uh, let's take one more call before we go to break. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hi, Jim. How are you? Uh, welcome back, John. I'm glad you're back for the holidays. What struck me of all the study information was the forged documents of the electors. They showed their legitimate documents, and then next to them, there were different colors. They were kind of like, they looked like they were legit because they looked like they were used in different states. The flowing ones looked like counterfeit bills from uh, some counterfeiter. But what gets me is they got to get to the point where who forged those documents? How are they going to implement the documents? When did Trump know about these documents? And how were they going to put them into the election? That's, to me, uh, just incredible. It's incredible. uh, It shows uh, intent that's uh, beyond uh, description. When you uh-huh. print up, when you print up phone electors and you put them in the states, I mean, where where where, where would they go beyond that? I mean, uh, they have to get to the bottom of that, Joan. I, you know it, and I know it, and uh, yep, uh, they got to get to the bottom of it. I'm glad you're back, Joan. <laughs> have a good holiday. Thank you, Jeff. Bye, bye. Thank you very much. And Jim makes a, a very good point. I mean, we all know, despite his denials, that. Ron Johnson was walking around on January 6th with um, a piece of paper in his pocket that he was going to try to get to Mike Pence. That was uh, the electors that Mike Pence should count from Wisconsin instead of, uh, I don't know if it was a Wisconsin, a, a slate of fake electors from one of the one of the states. I'm not sure it was Wisconsin itself, and I don't want to say anything that's incorrect, um, but he had fake electors in his pocket. And he said, oh, it wasn't me. It was all my chief of staff. Yeah, that's brave. So who put that slate together? Who told them to do it? You know, that's what we've got to find out. There's some there's some rot here. There's some disease here. And we have to we have to clean it all out or we will become sick again. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more calls and more talk of what happened on January 6th right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. We have been talking about the findings of the January 6th committee, which wrapped up its public hearings, and uh, we're playing sound bites of Jamie Raskin announcing the various charges, all of which are focused on Donald Trump, some of which contain other people as well. Let's move on to charge number two, conspiracy to defraud the United States. Listen to what Jamie Raskin said when he announced this charge. 
Second, we believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump, John Eastman, and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. In other words, to make an agreement to impair, obstruct, or defeat the lawful functions of the United States government by deceitful or dishonest means. Former President Trump did not engage in a plan to defraud the United States acting alone. He entered into agreements, formal and informal, with several other individuals who assisted him with his criminal objectives. Our report describes in detail the actions of numerous co-conspirators who agreed with and participated in Trump's plan to impair, obstruct, and defeat the certification of President Biden's electoral victory. That said, the subcommittee does not attempt to determine all of the potential participants in this conspiracy, as our understanding of the role of many individuals may be incomplete even today because they refuse to answer our questions. We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a far more complete picture through its own investigation. And um, he went on to say that those members of Congress, four of them were going to be referred to the House Ethics Committee for censure. They are Kevin McCarthy of California, Jim Jordan of Ohio, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and Andy Biggs of Arizona. What does that mean in the long run? Well, somebody like Andy Biggs is probably crazy enough to um, wear it as a badge of honor. Kevin McCarthy is just trying to trying to look the other way. And uh, Scott Perry and Jim Jordan have said the usual things, you know, wait till we're in power and see the havoc we wreak. Yeah, that's, they're good guys. <sighs> Let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Ron. How are you today? Okay. Um, the uh, report from the uh, January 6th Commission, which will, which will come out tomorrow, will that be part of the congressional record, which will be public to everybody? Um, I believe it will be, but... There are already, I've seen one ad, there are already organizations, I want to say the New Yorker, there are organizations who have said that they are going to publish it. Um, so it is definitely going to be available to the public, absolutely. Okay. And how long should we have to wait for the uh, DOJ to decide whether to indict Trump? Ah, well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? And not being privy to Jack Smith's mindset or who he's working with. I remember when he was announced as special prosecutor, people were like, oh, that's going to push everything back. And uh, the DOJ said, no, actually, it isn't. He will be up to speed very shortly and he will be moving this investigation forward quickly. Now, legally, what does quickly mean? So I got to quickly to lawyers doesn't mean what it means to you and me. To me, quickly is, oh, is it going to happen this week or next week or the week after that? But to lawyers, quickly can mean, oh, we're going to do it in just a few months. I don't know. So we just have to kind of wait and see. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate the call. 
Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Hello, Paul. How are you? I had that ominous feeling when Joan wasn't on for several days that something. Yeah. I was actually sorry. <clears throat> that I was a bit under the weather. Yeah. Well. Yes, indeedy. And I, I, I actually, when I, I was on last Wednesday, and I, I should have. I think I said something. At the very end of the show, like right as I was throwing it to Patty, I said, you know, guys, I tested positive this morning. I'm not feeling all that great. I'll see you when I see you. Um, but um, and then I kind of just went to bed and <laughs> got up yesterday. So there you go. Oh, good. Well, I, I think that we have come to an agreement as a as a, a nation, even a, you know, a unity of people here that Donald Trump should be indicted. And it's not just that the. Uh, the, the, the Democrats want him indicted. I've, I'm coming to the conclusion that the Republicans really do, too, because I keep hearing that they, what they say about the January 6th hearings is that they were unfair because there was no cross-examination of witnesses. <laughs> I started laughing because, well, you only have cross-examination of witnesses in a trial. You don't have a cross-examination in an evidentiary hearing or a grand jury hearing. It's only when specific charges have been made and there's a certain person so they obviously feel you see they obviously feel that the evidence that was put forth that was just set, set forth is so compelling and um it implicates somebody so damningly so that they need cross they need a defense because that's what you do and mm-hmm. in order to have a cross-examination you have to have first of all um a jury to listen to it and weigh the, the examination, and you need a, a judge to adjudicate the nature, scope, and relevance of of the cross examination because it, it can only really pertain to what the witness stated in direct examination. And you don't just take the witnesses whatever they said. You don't just play the tapes of what they said during the January sixth hearing. You have to call them all over again and do the whole thing all over again. And what you do with the January sixth hearings is say now. Uh, Ms. Hutchinson, you stated in the January 6th that such and such and such that that Pat Civilone told you that Tony Onato said to him in the car, and is do you still stand by? So you have to you have to say those things, and then they say yes, it is, and then you can have somebody step in and ask a different question. But it can't be outside. You can't say. And what about Black Lives Matter? Don't you think that they were there too? You can't. Mm-hmm. That's not that's but see that's what they wanted that's what they wanted Jim Jordan there for to do what we always see you know like Lindsey Graham do during Supreme Court justice hearings you know is to just throw a, a you know an F bit and and just throw it all over the wall so that nothing makes sense out of it so what they really want I'm convinced is a chance for everybody to have true cross examination of the witnesses and the facts so that we can all see and you know what to be honest to be fair. Remember what Robert Mueller said in the uh, Mueller report? He said, I cannot recommend indictment because we can't prosecute a sitting president. So it would be unfair to make, uh, recommend an indictment for a, 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 a suspect who cannot be prosecuted. So isn't this really the same? It's true. It's, it would be actually unfair to leave all of this evidence out there that the Republicans are screaming about with actually not actually giving Donald Trump a chance to fight in court and say and, and vindicate himself and say, no, see, the cross-examination proves that I'm not guilty. 
Well, I, I, you know, you, I followed you. I followed your logic. Uh, and it was interesting because you were talking about uh, Tony, uh, Tony Ornato in some of the reporting this morning. It said uh, that the January 6th committee has substantial concerns about efforts to obstruct its investigation by attorneys paid by groups connected to Mr. Trump, saying they may, those groups, those lawyer groups, they may have advised clients to provide false or misleading testimony. And who do they point to? Tony Ornato. Uh, this, this, uh, the panel had concerns about Tony Ornato, deputy chief of staff for operations in the Trump White House. And uh, that remember, there was that whole Cassidy Hutchinson thing about how Trump wanted right. to go to the Capitol and Tony Ornato and this Secret Service guy were telling about how he got so wacky and mad in the car and tried to grab the steering wheel. And then later they said when she testified to that, they were like, oh, no, 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 that never happened. Well, apparently Ornato actually sat before the committee and said he was not aware of a genuine push by the president to go to the Capitol. The only problem Uh is that they have his texts. They have his texts that indicate that, indeed, Mr. Ornato was aware, imagine that, of the president's plans to go to the Capitol. So Ornato, if not outright lied, certainly misled the committee. Who advised him to do that? Do you think he thought of it all on his own? I just don't, Paul. Right. And and the the good thing about cross-examination, which is what they want, is you get to compare testimonies to be consistent and then you get to show, and see in the in a hearing like an evidentiary hearing like the January sixth hearing, ah, uh, yeah, you can get in trouble for lying. But if you are in, in a criminal indictment, you can't just say I don't want to come because I know they're going to ask me things that uh, I don't want to mm-hmm. talk about. You will be thrown in the clinker, and that's probably where. Now was he? Wasn't he on Sopranos? Wasn't Tony Ornato? Maybe I'm missing him. Up with somebody else. <laughs> but, um, but no, not, he performed see, with that with the backup singers Dawn. Don't remember, it was Tony Ornato and Dawn. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, I I think that that's the problem. So if you really want cross examination and you really want to drag things out, I would suggest that's a great idea for especially somebody like him. And there's just one other thing I want to share with you, John. Is that, that this whole idea of like Carrie Lake filing lawsuits and Trump and his sixty plus lawsuits. You know, in order to file a lawsuit, you have to have standing, and that consists of three things. You have to have an injury. You have to have – there has to be somebody who's the cause of your injury, and there has to be some redress or some remedy that the court can order to make you whole again. I started thinking about if you lose an election or for any reason the election is, you know, even fraud or miscounted, there's an – is the candidate the one who's injured? I don't think so. I think it's the people who are injured. So how is it that the candidates get to come to court and they even have to be heard? Because, I mean, what beyond that, when the court thinks about redress or remedy, they think about two things. What kind of redress? Did you have expectation? In other words, what did you expect to get out of this? Well, I think if you run for office, you can't expect to win. Or there's another kind, which is called reliance. Should you just uh, be no worse off than if you hadn't run? Well, you're no worse off than if you hadn't run if you lose, right? So I don't see how the candidate is the one who's injured 
and you can't just the court can't do anything that would make either side of the of the voting public happy. You can't just award the election to someone else and you can't just turn it around because that disenfranchises the other side, whoever it is that they turn out to say that this candidate should win. That's why we say win, lose or draw, however it goes. We don't have redos on elections. We just say, you know, it's like it's like when you miss a bus. I've always been told, well, there's another one coming in a half hour. So just (laughs) wait your turn. Thank you, Paul. Uh, We've got a break for news at the top of the hour. We're going to continue sharing uh, some of the sound from the January 6th committee public hearing. We are going to take your calls. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I am joined by Professor William Muck. He is the co-host of the podcast Politics Lab. He's also a professor of poli science, uh, political science, at uh, North Central College in Naperville. And we are going to continue to talk about the January 6th committee. William, thank you so much. It has been too long, my friend. Hi, Joan. Good to be back and glad to hear you're feeling better. Yes, I I am. You know, um, each time I have COVID, like the first time I had COVID, I lost 10 pounds. Second time I had COVID, I lost five pounds. This time I only lost two pounds. So it's really not worth it for me to have it again. I figure that, you know, um, next time it'll be a zero sum game and, and it'll be all the misery for nothing. So I'm also not going to be writing that how to lose weight with COVID book that I had in the works. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm boosted and vaxxed. So. Um, while I, I do get sick, I never get very, very sick and certainly never sick enough to even think about calling an ambulance or going to the ER. So it's, I think that's about as good as it can get. <laughs> that's absolutely right. It's way better than what we're seeing play out in China right now. So I think the United States, we're, we're in a somewhat stable position. Yeah, the, they let's talk about that for a quick second. I do want to get to January 6th, but I think that's fascinating. You know, their whole country was becoming very politically restless because of the incredibly severe lockdown because they had, you know, zero COVID. We're going for zero COVID here. Um, And they have recently released those or at least eased, not released completely, but eased those restrictions They are even beginning to report some COVID cases, but I thought it was fascinating. I read uh, something this morning that said, well, they're saying they're saying this is how many COVID cases they've got. But we don't even know for sure if they're telling the truth because we know there's no access to any kind of scientific information. There's no um, transparency here. So basically they could tell us anything and we would have no way of verifying it. 
That's right. It's really difficult to get a, like you said, a clear, transparent account. I think the one thing that's really, for me, kind of fascinating is that uh, China and the United States have been held up as, you know, these global actors and who's got the better plan. And for a long time, it really looked like the United States was handling COVID in, in a pretty awful way. And I think there, there was some definitely some truth to that. But now China's also being dinged to say that, you know, this this extreme lockdown is also not tenable. And, mm-hmm. and so they're going to have their struggles with cases. So, you know, it's a difficult thing. And it's kind of fascinating to watch how different states have approached it. And frankly, even, you know, back here in, you know, in, in our little house, I think every family has to make those decisions. You know, I mean, some people on social media were implying somehow that, um, you know, that getting that I was, you know, I don't know, being inappropriately careless. And I'm not. I'm um, I've got a weakened immune system, but I choose not to continue to live my life locked up in the house. So I'm very selective about where I go and what I do. But every time I leave the house, you know, I'm putting myself at risk. Heck, I don't even have to leave the house, you know. One of my beloveds can bring it right home to me. But, you know, I it is it is a risk assessment that every single one of us has to make for ourselves where our comfort zone is. What are our risk factors? You know, when can we push it? When not? And I that's I think absolutely that right. That's how we're going to live. That's right. And we take advice, you know, from public health experts in terms of what's the best societal dynamics to, to allow play out and how do we individually navigate that? No, I, and again, we're learning, right? I mean, that's the thing. You, you're not expected to figure out pandemics right away. My hope is that, that we get a little better. So if when the next one comes as a, as a society and as individuals, we're, we're better positioned to handle it better than the first time around. Yes. Absolutely. Amen to that. And I don't know if you were listening at the top of the show, but um, Ray was talking to a colleague and friend of his who's based in London who told him that he's had COVID five times. So, oh. you know, three doesn't look so bad to me anymore. <laughs> That's right. I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking I'm, you know, middle of the road here. Anyway, I wanted to talk to you about the findings, the final presentation for the January 6th committee. And their decision, which I know a few months ago was was not settled, that they were definitely going to make a criminal referral. What do you make of all that? I think it's a big deal. And and as you were noting earlier, I mean, some of this is symbolic, right? So the, you know, Congress doesn't have the ability to indict, but I think they are, they are looking at the broad patterns of history and saying what happened during the Trump administration was extraordinary. What happened on January 6th is something to, to be written about on the history books. And it's important that we as, as Congress acknowledge that. And so, so I think the criminal referral was really, really important. Um, and especially, you know, the four specific crimes, but I I think more than anything, it was this institution saying what happened on January 6th, both before, the day of and after was not okay. And and if, if a democracy is going to heal itself, we have to play a role in accountability. And I think it's, it's a first step in getting closer to accountability. Yes. And um, also, too, Liz uh, Cheney pointed out that... If indeed the DOJ brings these charges and is successful prosecuting them against Donald Trump, we would um, have probably most likely gotten rid of him on the political scene. Um, Andy, do you have that Liz Cheney soundbite handy? Let's play that now. January 6th, 2021 was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next 
In our work over the last 18 months, the Select Committee has recognized our obligation to do everything we can to ensure this never happens again. At the beginning of our investigation, we understood that tens of millions of Americans had been persuaded by President Trump that the 2020 election was stolen by overwhelming fraud. And we also knew this was flatly false. We knew that dozens of state and federal judges had addressed and resolved all manner of allegations about the election. Our legal system functioned as it should, but our president would not accept the outcome. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. Members of his family, his White House lawyers, virtually all those around him knew that this simple act was critical. For hours, he would not do it. During this time, law enforcement agents were attacked and seriously injured. The Capitol was invaded, the electoral count was halted, and the lives of those in the Capitol were put at risk. In addition to being unlawful, as described in our report, this was an utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. Evidence of this can be seen in the testimony of President Trump's own White House counsel and several other White House witnesses. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. Um, I think uh, we know how Liz Cheney feels about this. She was uh, pretty clear there. Your reaction? You know, there's a bunch of things jump out at me. But one, I think maybe to start with, I don't think there's anybody who is a more effective voice on that committee than Liz Cheney. And some of it is because she's a Republican. It gives the party, uh, gives the committee a bipartisan nature, but also her willingness to directly confront Donald Trump over and over and over again. Um, it was so, so important. And the way that she talked about the importance of the peaceful transfer of power, you know, I've talked about that in classes and, and you know, every president through history has talked about that. But most of the time, we just sort of look at that and say, yeah, of course, of course, the president is going to leave when they lose. And then we see that that's not always guaranteed. And and I think that's why this moment is so important to reestablish that norm, right? Not just the laws, but also the norm that when you lose an election, you accept it gracefully and you move on. So, you know, she's so eloquent in, in talking about the, the importance of norms in democracy and that peaceful transfer of power, right? I just, you know, Really, really, I think she's the center of that committee. I think so, too. We are going to take a break. We are going to continue this discussion, and we are going to keep the phone lines open. I know a few of you are waiting to join the conversation. Hang on. We're going to get to your calls. 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. You can call us on that line. You can text me on that line and uh, we will be back with professor william muck right after this need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics wcpt 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming give us a like on facebook and a follow on both twitter and instagram 
WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am joined by political science professor William Muck, and uh, he also has a podcast called Politics Lab that he co-hosts. We are talking about the January 6th committee, which made it its final public appearance, gave us their summary, laid out the charges that they believe uh, the DOJ should seriously consider against Donald Trump and others. And now we wait uh, for their written report uh, to be released um, and um, and see what Mr. Smith does. Mr. Jack Smith is the special prosecutor that um, Merrick Garland has asked to take this over. Um, I have a question. Do you think it was Donald Trump's declaring that he was running again that led Merrick Garland to name Jack Smith as a special prosecutor to handle all this? And because it seems to me, you know, he could have done that at any time. I think there was fear, right? So so uh, Merrick Garland is coming into a Department of Justice that is perceived to be politicized. So you go back to the Trump administration and there were all sorts of uncomfortable ways in which uh, politics seeped in, specifically the office of the presidency seeped into that. And so my sense is that Merrick Garland wanted to reestablish the practice to say the Department of Justice is objective and is not swayed by political you know, persuasions or by the president or anything else. And so if you're going to be prosecuting the former president, again, something unprecedented in history, you try to do something that gives you a little more space so it doesn't appear to be politicized. And and so I think that's the reason he probably went to Jack Smith. I'm guessing there was probably long conversations within the DOJ about the best way to pursue that. And and Jack Smith is a really interesting choice because he's seen as a, you know, as an independent voice who has a long history in the Department of Justice, but also has a, has a long career in international justice. Uh, he was the chief prosecutor uh, at, at the Kosovo uh, court, international court in The Hague. So he's seen as somebody who's not uncomfortable going after, you know, big names. And so so in some ways, he's, he's a perfect fit. But I think it, to answer your question, I think Merrick Garland wanted to avoid that perception that he had politicized the DOJ. So that's I'm guessing that's the reason. And as soon as Trump declares, he realized this is the best path forward. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. George is calling in from the south side. Go ahead, George. You're on with me and uh, Professor William Muck. Well, good afternoon, Joan. Glad you're feeling better. We were all worried about you. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, professor, you're a political science professional, so I'd like to ask you this question. Um, it occurred to me during viewing and listening to the committee's last meeting yesterday that this event was so awful and so dangerous to to our future as a representative democracy and to be reminded again of how how violent and and horrific the events of that day were the pain and suffering that was inflicted on law enforcement officers and to Watch the subsequent conduct of the Republican Party since then, including the 137 members of the House, 
that voted not to certify Joe Biden's legitimate legal election. And now we've had a midterm where the coup d'etat party, the party that made war against our country, was rewarded by the, the people of this country with the majority power in the House of Representatives. That to me, that this is huge warning bells about our future. It seems like our democracy is on very thin ice. I mean, there were outstanding Democratic candidates for the Senate in Wisconsin and North Carolina who lost to Republicans with skeletons in their closet, maybe had something to do with the fact that the two candidates for the Democratic Party were both black. But it seems to me that the people of this country, far too many of them, are okay with the way Republicans do things. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Is, is the future as dark as I'm envisioning it right now? Thank you know, you I, question, I'm very sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, Joan and I have had some conversations before about the state of democracy, and I always feel bad because I feel like I'm coming in and, and trying to scare everybody about the future of the democracy. But I think you're, you're spot on in terms of how we should be thinking about this. Uh, Donald Trump presented a unique threat to democracy, um, unprecedented in terms of the history of the United States. And, and that's not coming from a partisan perspective, right? That's coming from standing back saying, let's look at presidents throughout history. And, and you know, scholars, political scientists, historians have all looked at this and, and realized the way in which the democracy can be threatened by a populist demagogue. Now, but your deeper question is really getting at the role of the political party in all of this. And and the scholarship has realized that the one check on a populist coming into power is a political party, that they're really the only mechanism that can stop it. The public in general will vote for a populist. We're easily swayed, but the party has to be more serious. And so I think this is a real concern for the democracy, not just the Trumps of the world, but also the state of the Republican Party right now and its willingness to tolerate anti-democratic candidates, right? So I, so I think getting rid of Trump is important, but also there also has to be a long-term reckoning within the Republican Party to eliminate some of these anti-democratic tendencies they, they now share. You know, along those lines, uh, Professor... Well, George, I want I, I want to add to the conversation here. You're talking about political parties. Um, I never really thought of uh, Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC, as any kind of bastion of good character. But now, apparently, even she is too um, not to, uh, not enough on the Trump train, too middle of the road. I don't know what the problem is, but you know she's been being challenged by the My Pillow guy, Mike Lundell who has said that he is absolutely going to try to lead the RNC and apparently has Donald Trump's support. If that if that happens, is there any hope for the Republican Party? It, it, it would be a very scary pace, a place if the my pillow guy is leading the Republican Party, right? Because this is what, what you're watching right now play out since the midterms is really sort of fascinating because you're seeing the elites, the Republican elites trying to distance themselves from Donald Trump. Essentially, they're trying to abandon him. And Trump is not going to go quietly. It's not going to be an easy process. And, and we won't really know until we see more public opinion data about where are the masses? Where is Trump's support? Is he losing, you know, support? 
support among the public. And and it's probably still too early to know. But if the party goes in the direction of Mike Lindell, I think it's a sign that they're not willing or they're not ready to have this reckoning. Um, and I think it's more than just getting rid of Trump. It's getting rid of all of these candidates and these voices who've tolerated anti-democratic and you know, voter restrictions. There's a whole list of things that the party has has drifted into, which I think are really, really undermine the Democratic experiment. George, did you want to make any other comments before we move on? Yeah, one more additional comment. Uh, this was discussed on uh, uh, Tom Hartman's show. Uh, the threat that Kevin McCarthy has made to the Republican senators uh, who will vote for the budget agreement that the Senate has just worked out, telling them that if they do vote for this, that any legislation they sponsor beginning with the next session will be immediately discarded, shoved aside, or voted down in the House. I mean, this is where we're at now. Yeah, Andy Biggs sent a letter to the Republican senators, and he sent it Monday night making making that threat. Um, Yeah, we've got to take a break. Um, Thanks for the for the call and the comment, George. We are going to continue this discussion. And this letter, by the way, that uh, he's talking about, Andy Biggs, who is the one who is also uh, challenging Kevin McCarthy for speaker, but only seems to have the himself the support of the ultra right. He sent a letter to the Senate um, because there's a lot of controversy over this spending bill, you know, the budget and how we have to keep the government working. And the thinking apparently in the Senate is that they'll get this passed so that Kevin McCarthy doesn't have to deal with it. But other people are saying, well, you know, Kevin McCarthy, basically they want the Senate to wait so Kevin McCarthy can gum up the works. Um, Anyway, the letter said any legislative priority of those senators who vote for this bill, that's the spending bill, um, including the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, that um, Congress is going to basically screw them over. If Andy Biggs has anything to say about it, which hopefully he does not. We are going to be taking a break. We're going to talk more about the January 6th stuff and uh, continue our conversation with political science professor William Muck right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined now by Professor William Muck. He's a political science professor at North Central College in Naperville. He's also co-host of a podcast called Politics Lab. We have been talking about the January 6th committee um, where everybody got a chance to say a little bit. And Jamie Raskin wrapped things up by walking through the four charges, four criminal charges that they are going to recommend that the Department of Justice consider against Donald Trump. Uh, charge number three, conspiracy to make a false statement. Let's listen to a real brief bit of sound about what Jamie Raskin had to say about charge number three. The evidence clearly suggests that President Trump conspired with others to submit slates of fake electors to Congress and the National Archives. We believe that this evidence we set forth in our report is more than sufficient for a criminal referral of former President Donald J. Trump and others in connection with this offense. One of four charges that they are making a criminal referral to the DOJ with. 
Well, let's go to the phone lines. Chris is calling in from Glen Allen. Oh, oh, sorry, Andy. Uh, never mind. Let's let's uh, hold off on the phones then for a second. And um, uh, Professor Muck, um, charge number three, conspiracy to make a false statement. Uh, Donald Trump guilty of lying is essentially what they're saying. Yeah, and I think it speaks to why legislative reform and the Electoral Count Act is so important. Um, you know, so the, the the way the Constitution is written and the way the laws have been written about how that change of power takes place, there was some ambiguity. But the longstanding norm was that the vice president could never intervene, could never send, you know, allow different slates mm-hmm. of electors in, that he was his role was ceremonial. And so they really do have some bipartisan support to get this Electoral Count Act passed. Past, and I think it's really important to prevent something like this from happening in the future, because what Donald Trump was so good at was exploring the ambiguity and and sort of rejecting the way things have been done in the past to say, no, no, we can do it differently. Um, so that's why I think legislation to close some of these loopholes is so important. I'd like to ask you to uh, talk about that in a little bit greater detail, because when I first read about it, I thought, well, you know, the Republicans are never going to go along with that. You know, I mean, the Electoral College and the way things are set up, you know, it's uh, it seems like a system rigged in their favor. But they are, uh, according to an article that I saw this morning, and I didn't have a chance to read the fine print. So that's why I need you to educate me. It said that the Republicans are coming out in favor of this because it's their way of, quote, owning the libs. Explain that to me. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how that's owning the libs. It's it's an interesting comment. I, I think that. I think they may be able to argue that this is the only reform that is necessary and we don't need to do all these other things because when the January 6th committee was first being, you know, first conversations about that, what some of the Republican voices were arguing is that we don't need any of that. All we need to do was clean up the role of the vice presidency. And if we do that, we've solved the problem. And so, so I I can't speak exactly to what their partisan motivations are. I will say at a, a bigger level, what this all exposed is is that a good democracy depends on both law and norms uh, and because not every single thing is written down in a democracy a lot of it is just the common practices and norms that everybody follows so you know we expect that when a candidate loses they accept that loss and move on and and again Donald Trump challenged all of those norms and so so this is a point where you know Democrats taking the lead but also getting enough Republicans along to to codify to say that it's not just a norm that the vice president plays a ceremonial role. We're going to put that into law and say, no, the vice president has no other role other than standing there and counting the votes. We got a text um, from a listener, and I think a lot of people are confused about the January 6th committee, what they were trying to do and what powers they did and did not have. I got a text from somebody who said, what was the point of the January 6th committee if they did not make Trump ineligible to run? 
And I think these are fair things to be confused about because what you've seen is parallel investigations going on by the Department of Justice and the Congress. And so so Congress has the power to investigate. Actually, it's one of their really most important powers. And so what we saw the January 6th committee doing was investigating, uh, but they don't have the power to charge, right? That's only something that, that the Department of Justice has. So we see here that both are investigating, but only the DOJ can actually carry out uh, the prosecution there. But but I would say if we think about what was the point of the January 6th committee, so much of it was to tell the truth. And I think that's one of the big things when we step back and say, you know, was this committee successful? Was it effective? I, I, the thing that stands out to me is that they have been able to argue and demonstrate that the truth still matters and that it can be uncovered. Right? I think that's the one thing where I look at what they've done and how they've changed the narrative. You know, six months ago, Donald Trump was able to say the election was stolen and, and it was it was sort of a viable argument. I think the committee has done a, just an amazing job of reestablishing truth that the election wasn't stolen, that there's no big lie or that, the you know, this this big lie is there's nothing to it. And so so I think that's really, really valuable, not just for history, but also for our, our current political system. I, I think much of Donald Trump's current problems are because the January 6th committee has been able to grab hold of truth and pull it away from Donald Trump. That's an interesting take, because I was just going to ask you if I agree with what the January 6th committee is doing. I mean, I think that they have really dug into um, what happened, really shining a light on who was involved and, and what they did. But will this make an impression on the people who are part of the Donald Trump fan club, the people who supposedly, if he can be believed, which we know he can't, the people who supposedly within minutes bought five million dollars of Trump trading cards. They sold out. They sold out. (laughs) Um, Is it going to is it going to get to those people? Is it going to have an effect on them? No, I don't think so. Right. So his the most devoted followers uh, are this is this new information is, is not going to change anything. Right. So they've got their schema. They've got their their framework for understanding the world. And so any additional information isn't going to break through. But I think there's a lot of uh, of the American public that is open to new information. And I think that's what was so really re- revealing about the midterm elections is that those most extreme Trump candidates, those who were denying the elections, uh, they lost. They struggled. Now, a lot of Trump candidates won, but the most extreme voices didn't do well. And that suggests that there there's something within at least certain elements within the American public who've said enough of this and, and that the January 6th committee was able to change that perspective. You know, one of the things that Donald Trump was so good at is he would say things over and over and over again, even if they were false. And eventually people start to believe them because you hear them so often. And I think what the January 6th committee did so well is repeat the truth over and over and over over again. And after months and months of hearing that, I think it's starting to sink in. And I think truth is starting to return. So, you know, for many things that I think they've done well, I think that may be the most important thing. Interesting point, because you're absolutely right. They did use that technique with us. We're going to tell you, we're going to tell you again, and then we're going to tell you what we told you before. And it does. It, it, it sinks in. Let's go back to the phone lines. Dave from Hoffman Estates wants to join our conversation. Dave, you're on with me and Professor William Muck. Go ahead. Hey, Joe. Hey, Professor. Uh, 
two things before I go with what I was going to talk about. Um, you were just mentioning on that January 6th committee so was able to do, and I watched, you know, I agree, you know, that they didn't have no no power to uh, convict in that, but uh, they were said last night that it, it was a huge help in getting that red wave from happening, that a lot of uh, Democratic candidates did get in that may not have gotten in in this last election. Sort of a January 6th committee fallout? No, no, just when, you know, with them being televised, and uh, as you've been saying before, that getting the truth out and, you know, showing it on the TV, that they believed it helped a lot of voters come, you know, that they weren't going to allow that kind of uh, animal back in, you know, people that believed like him, you know, that it uh, got, you know, that you got voters, you know, Democratic voters to vote. And um, talking on that Trump card, I've seen something where it's already dropped 70% in price. <laughs> so if you want to get one now, it's about, what, 30 bucks? <laughs> okay. but, uh, but the uh, thing I was going to talk on was, as one who's a veteran and stuff, and took the oath, just like any congressman or senator or president, vice president, to uphold and defend the country and the Constitution from all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Now, how is Trump and the, the Lauren Boebert and uh, Marjorie Taylor Soylent Green not been arrested as enemies of the state? Well, let's let's talk about that with a professor. You know, I was arguing, professor, that we would get a good turnout because people were still ticked about Roe v. Wade. Um, but is it is it possible that somehow the January 6th hearings also motivated um, apathetic Democrats to get up off the couch and vote? I, I think they did. And I, I think they did. I think there were multiple things mobilizing not just Democratic voters, but I think also some of these rare independent voters and maybe even some Republicans who said, uh, especially in those 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 races where there was election denying going on. You know, we're talking about Kerry Lake and others where um, I, I think some voters said, you know, this is just too far. And, and, and we would you know maybe support a more moderate Republican, uh, but not somebody like Kerry Lake. And, and I think that's part of the reason that the Republican Party is starting to try to move past Donald Trump. It's not because of his behavior or anything like that. It's not necessarily a principal decision. They've decided he's no longer effective. He's, you know, he's an electoral loser. So that's what's driving their motivation, um, which, again, is sort of an interesting thing. And and when we talked last time, I didn't anticipate that playing out. I was more fearful uh, that that election denier stuff would work. But the American public showed us a little something. I think so. I think so, too. And I don't really care what motivates people as long as they are motivated by one thing or another. Um, we need to take a real quick break. We're going to talk, um, continue our this conversation about January 6th. I'm going to play with you, Jamie, Ra- um, play Jamie Raskin's uh, announcement of the fourth criminal charge that the committee is recommending that the DOJ take a look at when we come right back after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820.
I am talking with Professor William Muck. He is a political science professor at North Central College in Naperville. He also co-hosts a podcast called Politics Lab. I want to play Jamie Raskin announcing the fourth criminal recommendation to the Department of Justice about Donald Trump. The January 6th committee had their big final hearing. They all said their piece. And then Jamie Raskin was like, you know what? Here are four criminal charges that we feel are pretty obvious. We feel that we've got all the facts. We feel that the DOJ really needs this. One, two, three, four. Charge number four, insurrection. The final statute we invoke for referral is Title 18, Section 2383. The statute applies to anyone who incites, assists, or engages in insurrection against the United States of America and anyone who gives aid or comfort to an insurrection. An insurrection is a rebellion against the authority of the United States. It is a grave federal offense anchored in the Constitution itself, which repeatedly opposes insurrections and domestic violence and indeed uses participation in insurrection by office holders as automatic grounds for disqualification from ever holding public office again at the federal or state level. Anyone who incites others to engage in rebelling, assists them in doing so, or gives aid and comfort to those engaged in insurrection is guilty of a federal crime. The committee believes that more than sufficient evidence exists for a criminal referral of former President Trump for assisting or aiding and comforting those at the Capitol who engaged in a violent attack on the United States. The committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transition of power under our Constitution. The President has an affirmative and primary constitutional duty to act to take care that the laws be faithfully executed Nothing could be a greater betrayal of this duty than to assist in insurrection against the constitutional order. The complete factual basis for this referral is set forth in detail throughout our report. These are not the only statutes that are potentially relevant to President Trump's conduct related to the 2020 election. Depending on evidence developed by the Department of Justice, the president's actions could certainly trigger other criminal violations nor are President Trump and his immediate team the only people identified for referrals in our report. As part of our investigation, we asked multiple members of Congress to speak with us about issues critical to our understanding of this attack on the 2020 election and our system of constitutional democracy. None agreed to provide that essential information. As a result, we took the significant step of issuing them subpoenas based on the volume of information particular members possessed about one or more parts of President Trump's plans to overturn the election. None of the subpoenaed members complied. And uh, Jamie Raskin went on to say that four House members were going to be referred to the Ethics Committee for Censure, Kevin McCarthy of California, Jim Jordan of Ohio, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, and Andy Biggs of Arizona. Is that meaningful? Is that meaningful, William? I mean, is it just like a a demerit on their permanent record kind of meaningful? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Because when you think about, you know, when Raskin was reading this, the insurrection car uh, charge, it is really the mic drop moment, right? I remember watching that yesterday and thinking my eyes are open. I'm like, he, they're they're going to do it, right? This is a big deal. And mm-hmm. then when you talk about members of Congress, you say, we're going to refer you to the ethics committee and we're going to have a conversation about you, even though Republicans will be in control of those. Uh, so I think it was a little bit of we're going to try to police ourselves. And, and so, yeah, that was a bit of a weak decision, I think, going, you know, Going after insurrection charge and bringing that against the the president of the United States was historic. And then saying, but for members of Congress, we'll, like you said, we'll have a demerit system. So I think there's a bit of a contrast there. So this is a pretty serious charge. I mean, this is this is breathtaking to me. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, seditious conspiracy uh, being faced by individuals and also the Proud Boys in general. Uh, But this is. This is kind of taking a big, serious charge all the way to the top. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, you know, this, it's going to transition to the Department of Justice, and they will have to make similar decisions to say, do they see the threat in the same way? Um, and it's hard to know, but but I think, you know, if you're carrying out an objective analysis of this, and, you know, thinking about this in the grand scheme of history, and thinking about the pattern, right? One of the things that Jamie Raskin mentioned that made my heart flitter a little bit was he mentioned the political scientists. He mentioned the historians at another point in his commentary, and he said, we've talked to them. And what they've told us is that if you don't deal with the tax on your democracy, they will return again and again. And so if you're in the Department of Justice, you're going to be thinking about that, right? Their job is to keep the country safe. And if they fail to act in this historic moment, they bear some culpability for what follows. So so it is hard to predict what's going to happen. But I would imagine that Jack Smith and, and the, the team at the Department of Justice is taking this very seriously. And I think we're probably likely going to see some charges of a very serious nature against Donald Trump on the January 6th stuff. I think we're also likely to see charges for the document case. But I, I, I think Donald Trump is going to have a wave of very serious charges come against him. In what sort of time frame? I was talking earlier about the fact that um, there was comment, oh, you know, it'll it'll happen soon. But as soon in my world is different than soon in the world of a lawyer. One of my listeners even texted in. They said, oh, well, if you're a lawyer, soon means forthwith. Surely, you know that, Joan. <laughs> um, but what does what does soon mean that it'll you know before the next presidential election soon? This is a great question, and it's so hard to know. But here's the one thing we can think about. Um, normally, when the, when the Department of Justice is carrying out an investigation, they're in no rush, right? They want to cross all the T's and dot the I's and take their time. But this is not a normal investigation. There's a presidential election coming up in 2024, and they do not want this to be playing out in the midst of that. So, you know, they are also very smart about the political ramifications, all of this. So that would suggest that they're going to move a little more quickly than they might otherwise. So it's hard to know what that window looks like. I think it wasn't going to happen before the Georgia runoff election. Uh, but I think we might see something sooner than we think, just because if they wait another year, then suddenly this is playing out in the middle of a presidential election. And that could be real or a primary campaign. And that could be really awful. So that that's probably nudging them a bit. But even if the DOJ does move, even if Jack Smith, say, January 15th, decides to file these charges, 
Uh, the, we've seen, I mean, the court systems, they move slowly. Everybody's got to get a lawyer. You have to have a preliminary hearing. You know, you can ask for delays. You can ask for continuances. Um, will we see any kind of resolution even in tw- the, all of 2023? And I mean, if they decide to file these charges and it goes to court with all of the judicial maneuvering that we know Donald Trump is so very good at, Will we actually get resolution within the next year even? It's it, probably not, right? Because I think ah, what you just said there is that. the no. <laughs> well, it's the most what you what you just said was the most important thing, right? Because think about all of the tactics that Donald Trump de- employs or deploys to slow things down. Just think about these document cases, how he's always, you know, raising issues that that I think are, are oftentimes nonsense. But if you're a court, you have to hear it because it's the former president of the United States. And these oftentimes work their way all up to the Supreme Court. So every at every turn, it is likely that Donald Trump is going to do that. So it'll make it slow. It'll make it awkward. Um, um, you know, it is it's probably inevitable that this is going to be playing out in the midst of a primary, maybe even, you know, as the presidential election is playing out. But, you know, that's what the, the court system is for. And, you know, conceivably, you could have the president, a former president of the United States running for president and also being charged with a crime. Right. It's happened elsewhere around the world, and it certainly could happen here. Well, you know, here in the state of Illinois, we uh, we uh, we're not averse to electing people who are under a cloud, <laughs> under indictment, have past convictions, as long as, you know, they're they fall within, you know, what's allowed for their office. And that's what worries me. I mean, we're look at us. We're a blue state and we have no problem electing people who are under any kind of legal cloud or indictment. What, the rest of the world isn't even as liberal as we are. That's that's a really good point. That being said, though, I think part of the reason the Republicans are trying to move away from Trump is they realize this is going to be bad for them. If he ends up being the nominee and every week there's a new story about about the you know crimes that are committed either with the documents or January 6th, this is going to wear people down. So I think the Republicans want to try to cut ties as quick as possible. Of course, Donald Trump is not going to do that. I think as they're looking forward, if this case continues to play out through the primary, it's bad for Donald Trump, but it's also really, really bad for the Republican Party as a whole. Well, thank you for joining me today. It is always so much fun to talk with you about this stuff. Uh, We will see you in the next year. That sounds fantastic, Joan. I always enjoy joining you. Uh, It's Professor William Muck. He's co-host of a podcast called Politics Lab. He's also a professor of political science at North Central College in Naperville. We're going to take a break for news and be back with much more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This hour of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56DAVID. Right now, there are young people across the world facing a tough choice. Continue their dream of education or drop out to help their family put food on the table. You can help change their future in a single moment. See how far your support can go at unbound.org. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The Better Government Association takes the time to look through the data to find the facts 
to share with the people of Illinois so that we can see how our government is and sometimes is not functioning. Uh, Casey Toner is an investigative reporter with the Better Government Association. And when I saw him a few weeks ago, he alluded to the fact that there was uh, something that he was working on, that he was close to being able to talk about. So, uh, so let's find out if he can share his secrets with us today. Casey, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I am doing remarkably well. I am just back after four or five days uh, with my third bout of COVID. So um, I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good about being a functioning adult yet again. So what have you been up to? Well, uh, I worked on a story recently uh, with Mina Bloom of Block Club Chicago um, about car crashes in the bike lane down Milwaukee Avenue. And what we found is that there have been more car crashes in the bike lane uh, on Milwaukee Avenue um, in the past, uh, from from 2020 to now, uh, than any other street in the city. Um, And, you know, citywide, there have been, you know, 439 uh, crashes in the bike lane. Uh, And, you know, these are are spaces where cyclists are supposed to be safe, uh, but we found that they are just not. Uh, It has, you know, we have all different kinds of bike lanes all around the city of Chicago. There are some that are simply painted. There are some that have um, some kind of either concrete barrier or I don't know what you call those little buoys that stick up out of the ground. But it, it seems to me that without some kind of protection, physical protection for a bike lane, that crashes are bound to happen. And, and that's what we found. You know, part of the issue is that there's just no consistency with the protections that exist. And, you know, to the city's credit, they have been getting better at, uh, you know, creating more bike infrastructure that does offer protections, uh, but still it tends to be, um, you know, scattershot. Um, and Milwaukee Avenue is a you know good example of that, um, because if there is a bike lane and it's just a stripe that's on the pavement, you know, that doesn't um, prevent anyone from, you know, getting hit by the driver of a car. Um, and what we found and what we did in our story was we went and we spoke to every single person um, that filed a report after one of these crashes. And, um, you know, we heard from them about, you know, what it did to their life um, because we felt that that would connect with people. And, you know, for the people who lived, and there were three deaths on Milwaukee Avenue um, since January 2020, uh, but for the people who lived, you know, these crashes severely impacted their lives. You know, we spoke to one guy who had um, a pretty well-established dancing career, uh, but then a car crushed his leg and he oh. became a server. You know, we talked. We found a woman who was permanently scarred and disfigured after a crash. Um, you know, we talked to one guy who got hit by a Hummer H3 head-on and his teeth were knocked out of alignment. So, you know, these crashes had a real detrimental uh, impact on uh, bicyclists. And let's, you know, let's face it, you know, uh, when you've got a car and a bike, it is not going to be the people in the car that are that are that are injured. I mean, it's you know, you have so so little protection. And frankly, 
I've noticed, especially downtown, I'm always nervous because I, you know, I took driver's ed, Casey, a long time ago. And I don't know if they've changed their teaching. I hope to God they have, because so many people are not in the habit of checking their mirror and checking that the bike lane is clear before they make a right turn at an intersection. And, you know, did you find, were there certain parts of the road? Was it like the cars making right turns? Was it people just swerving into the bike lanes? I've also seen the problem publicized that when people park or double park in the bike lane and then the bikers have to go out and around them, where was what what are the most dangerous parts of this process? Well, one of the things we we found, and um, you know you kind of alluded to this, that you know people don't check their mirrors. and um, you know this this is definitely happening uh, when bicyclists get doored. And we found that I think it was about a third of all crashes um, on uh, Milwaukee Avenue occurred. Uh, due to doorings where people are not looking at their mirrors. They're not looking at where. So this to be, to be clear, this is like where somebody parks, they park along the side of the road, you know, they get their stuff together and then they just whip out the driver's side door, not realizing that there is a biker coming up. Correct. And you know, that that happened, I think like 30% of all the crashes on Milwaukee Avenue, that was the case. And for cyclists, you know, there's a double danger. One, you know, they get doored, and as one of the person, one of the persons, uh, people we spoke to said, you know, you don't, you don't go through the door. You hit the door, and then you fly off. You know, mm-hmm. so there's that initial crash, and then the secondary danger uh, is getting uh, run over afterwards. And one of the cases we found that there was a hit and run case where a woman was doored by a driver. That driver stuck around, and then she was allegedly hit by the driver of a Diddy transport van that drove away and, and, and never came back. Um, you know, so just for, for drivers not being observant and not thinking and not looking at their mirrors can have, um, you know, extremely, uh, you know, dangerous consequences. We did, by the way, you said that there were the greatest number of accidents on Milwaukee. Milwaukee is also an incredibly long street. Did, did you um, account for the, for the simply, length of the street and the possibility that there would be more accidents because of it? Yes, we, we, we did think about that. I mean, it's also to be clear, you know, it, it is also a place that has more bike lanes um, than, than most streets. Uh, but still, you know, the experts that we spoke to said that, you know, again and again and again, that, uh, you know, Milwaukee Avenue is one of the more dangerous places for, for cyclists in the city of Chicago. You know, we spoke to, um, you know, trial attorneys who represent, uh, you know, represent cyclists in these cases. And they say that most of uh, the cases that they deal with, you know, arise from, um, you know, Milwaukee Avenue. And in addition, I think it's also notable to say that, you know, there's a stretch of Milwaukee Avenue that, um, you know, includes the very busy uh, bustling commercial districts of Logan Square and Wicker Park. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of uh, action there. But still, at the same time, you know, the record shows that, you know, this is the most dangerous street for cyclists in Chicago. When uh, one of the things I know that you often do with the BGA is you not only identify a problem, but you try to find places where the problem 
is being addressed. I know that biking is huge in Europe. I'm sure um, that there are other states that also have a lot of cyclists. Has somebody figured this out, what needs to be done? And that is something that, you know, we mentioned in our story. You know, we talk about, you know, possible solutions to this issue. And kind of like you're saying, you know, it is common um, approach in European cities to just shut down, you know, stretches of streets and and open up to uh, cyclists. You know, right now, for example, Paris, uh, Paris, France, like there's a there's a very big section of the city that they have just shut down and it opened up to, to cyclists, which creates, you know, some of its own problems. But uh, they're, they're different problems than, than people getting hit by cars. Uh, but then even, you know, in, in stateside, there are cities like uh, Denver and San Francisco that have also done the same thing, um, you know, to, to great effect. Um, you know, one of the problems in the city is that, you know, the process to build bike lanes, the process to, you know, kind of gain this out is divided among 50 different aldermen with different priorities. And so it can be hard to enact, um, you know, these, these very large infrastructure changes when, you know, the map is controlled by so many different people. These kinds of physical barriers that I've seen, whether it is a simply a, um, a concrete, like, parking um, you know, those little parking things that are about eight inches high and about six inches wide. I've also seen in parts of the downtown area where they have those um, like flexible buoys that, that stick up. That would seem like a no brainer, Casey. What's the problem with installing those? Is there not enough room? Is is it are they too expensive? It, it kind of depends on, on where you are in the city. You know, I did mention that thing. I do think it is it is worth noting that there are 50 different aldermen that have veto power over projects in their wards. Um, and, and that's just a very large obstacle. Um, you know, in addition to that, you know, we found that, you know, there, there's really not much of a formal process for building bike lanes. Um, and right now this is actually, uh, you know, this has actually become uh, an issue that's being examined by the Chicago uh, Inspector General's office, you know, this lack of a process for building bike lanes. Um, so, you know, right now the, the review by the city is ongoing and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll learn more, um, you know, either at the end of the month or more likely in the new year. I'm speaking with Casey Toner, who's an investigator with the Better Government Association. And in conjunction with Block Club Chicago, uh, they've done an analysis of um, car bike crashes in the city of Chicago, where they're likely to happen and why. When we come back, I want to talk more about this with you, Casey. You talked about the problem of, um, you know, so many different alders weighing in and potentially changing things in their ward, even when the streets connect. I'd like you to, when we come back, to talk what is some of the opposition, if there is full-throated opposition to any of these measures to create physical barriers to keep bikers safe. We'll be back with that right after this. Take Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Casey Toner, investigative reporter with the Better Government Association. In conjunction with Block Club Chicago, they took a look at bike crashes in the city of Chicago, discovering that Milwaukee Avenue was the most dangerous 
uh, place to travel if you are a cyclist. We have talked about the kinds of physical barriers that can sometimes give cyclists extra protection. And also, I think the physical barriers uh, serve to remind drivers who are making right turns that, oh, by the way, yeah, there is indeed a bike lane there. Yeah, I see those uh, little cones. Maybe I better look in my mirror before I uh, swing the car around. But, you know, one of the problems with kind of standardizing what we do in the city of Chicago, as Casey was pointing out, is that we have uh, 50 older people in the city of Chicago, and they all kind of get to decide what things look like in their ward. Casey, when you were looking into this, is there opposition to placing physical barriers? And if so, who is it coming from? Andy? Casey, can you hear me? America more, oh, wait a minute. I, Casey, I, you got to you got to start over. You were muted uh, for a second. Okay. So sorry, start sorry from the beginning that. yet again. Okay. Uh, I think in America more generally, and I we would point this out in our story that there is uh, you know a car culture, um, and it is you know part of the economy. Many people have cars. They drive their cars to and from work, and as such, uh, you know cities in America and suburbs certainly are designed around cars. Um, and, and that's just a big impediment, I think, you know, more generally. And so, you know, there are people who run businesses, for example, who uh, often equate cars with with business, cars with customers. Um, you know, but that's not always the case because, you know, four people can fit in a car, but, um, you know, many, many, many more people can fit on a bus, you know, for example. Um, you know, but, but that's just a very common issue where, you know, business owners want to keep the parking um, you know, outside uh, their business. Um, I know, and we get into the story, but I know there's also an obstacle with the parking meters, for example, the city's lousy, um, you know, parking meter contract. And, uh, you know, that contract makes it so that the city is kind of limited in the decisions that it can make, um, you know, with, with its streets. And, you know, speaking of this larger issue of, of car culture where, um, you know, Mayor Lori Lightfoot earlier this year, you know, talked about, um, you know, the city of Chicago being a car city. And that rubbed a lot of people in, you know, sustainable transportation, you know, the wrong way. And, you know, I did this, this story earlier in the summer that uh, was about drag racing uh, out by Big Marsh on the southeast side of Chicago. And there's just a long stretch of road there that people have uh, done drag racing there for literally generations. And, um, you know, the alderman out there is just against speed cameras. She's just against speed cameras. And, you know, she told me, you know, basically, I don't support speed cameras. I don't support one right here. Even though that one speed camera, if it was there, you know, would do away with the drag racing on the stretch. And that, that's the kind of power. Well, does she feel that there's a big drag racing vote that she doesn't want to lose? A big drag racing contingent? What? Why? For her, I mean, what she claimed was that the drag racers would destroy the cameras with a bat. Uh, and that seemed a bit far-fetched to me. Uh, but overall, she's just opposed to the cameras and people getting tickets for speed. Even though people down there are going, you know, literally 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour, um, you know, on this, this stretch of road, and this would put a very clear end to it, 
she was just against it, and she's the alderman, and alderman have veto power, um, you know, over streets projects and in their districts. And so this is just a common thing that, you know, has happened in Chicago for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, with cycling and bike lanes, they're certainly growing in the city, but there are a number of impediments to creating greater cycling infrastructure in the city of Chicago. So the, I can see where maybe business owners would feel would feel that parking is problematic in front of their stores if there's a bike lane. And also, you mentioned our part of the city of Chicago's parking meter deal. And I I think that once those meters are there, the city of Chicago, there is a process if they want to get rid of them, but it's not. It's not easy. So those those streets would kind of be locked in, wouldn't they? They are. I mean, they're, they're, they're just locked in with, you know, and we're, we're talking about big, big, big picture ideas to like shut down streets and open up to cycling. The parking meter deal just makes stuff like that very difficult. But still, there's ways to design around it. I mean, I was in um, uh, Portland last summer, and one of the things that, that they do, and one of the things the city does in certain spaces is that there is that the bike lane is uh, on the other side of the cars in between the curb. Uh, so the cars themselves form kind of a, you know, a fortified bike lane. You know, but that presents its own issues with, with dooring and such. But at the very least, it gets, you know, cyclists, um, you know, out of traffic. Uh, but still, again, it's like, you know, the all the people have a very strong vote and there's no formal process um, to really get this done. There's just a lot of, there's, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So is anybody taking the lead on this? When you when you presented these facts, was there a group of older people that said, you know, this is really interesting. Let's we should all get together and figure this out. What was the reaction? Well, it, it depends on the alderman. Uh, it depends on the alderman. Um, like, for example, there is an alderman in um, you know, the Logan community, La Spada, who is very bike friendly. And, you know, he has he has spoken kind of at length about the need for cycling protections. He is a cyclist and he says he's been hitting, uh, you know, a half dozen times. Um, you know, and then again, there are other cyclists who are just not as, um, you know, who are just not as, as uh, you know, forthright about, you know, what they want to do. Um, and I know that earlier this summer, there's been a couple of you know, pro-cycling legis- uh, pieces of legislation that have kind of stalled in city council. Um, Alderman uh, Vasquez earlier this summer uh, introduced an ordinance that would allow the city to tow any car blocking uh, the traffic, um, you know, that's designated for the use of cycles. And um, Alderman Matt Martin uh, of the 47th Ward, he introduced legislation that would uh, require require uh, the city to consider building bike lanes when they do any uh, major street project in the city. Um, you know, unfortunately, both of those pieces of legislation are, are stuck in committee right now. But you know, there are some aldermen who are definitely in favor of uh, making changes to make cycling safer for cyclists in the city of Chicago. Well, recently, on when I say recently, I mean in the last six months or so. I've seen on social media sometimes when there is a car that is illegally parked in a bike lane, people will take a picture of it and post it on social media, sort of like, like, look, this is what we have to deal with all the time. 
And part of the reason why, I mean, I love to cycle. And when I was a graduate student at the Ohio State University, I used to bike to class. And there was one day when I was just zipping along and a delivery truck uh, turned left right in front of me without any kind of signal. And I was very fortunate. I bounced. I hit the back wheel. But instead of my bike spinning around in front of the wheel, my bike spun around behind the wheel. So the truck didn't run me over. But I mean, you've you know, if if anybody I mean, that wasn't even like a bike lane issue. That was just somebody who forgot to signal you're just so vulnerable on a bike, and it would just seem like if we, if this is something we really want to encourage, we really have to sit down and figure out how to keep these people safe. Yes, and we spoke to a man who summed it up pretty well. He said that, you know, cycling itself isn't dangerous. It's cars that make cycling dangerous. Um, and it's just a matter of how, you know, we as a society decide to uh, reconcile, you know, those two things, reconcile that car culture that is built into the United States economy at this point with the safety um, and the the pleasures of of people who like to ride bicycles. Yeah. And let me know if um, if there's any um, any ordinance or any talk about this in city council that looks like it might lead to some kind of policy shift, because that's something that I think people would really want to know about. Casey, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about this. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with some more politics right after this. WCPT replay. Tim Hogan joins me in studio. I know it's always like, oh, Democrats are bedwetters. Democrats are bedwetters. <laughs> but like the, the other, we are. But the other side of that is like Republicans never worry. They're like, whatever. Like we're gonna not count the yeah. votes and you know say crazy things. But yeah, these are our candidates, and we're gonna win and own the libs because you guys suck. You know that that is like the general demeanor of the Republican Party. And I think there's a little bit of a lesson there of like some confidence. You know, having a little bit of backbone and believing what we're doing mm-hmm. um and i just look it's it's like the narrative flipped overnight right barreling into election day it's like oh my god are we talking too much about democracy are we talking too much about abortion this like hemming and hawing of like oh are we talking too much about the collapse of western civilization no like that's a big deal keep listening to wcpt 820 because facts matter <laughs> Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the January 6th committee and some of the stuff that was said. Also, there was news made today, um, broadband. You know, one of the things that we became aware of during the pandemic is that there's a lot of parts of the country where you just can't get Wi-Fi. And when we were in the throes of the pandemic and people were trying to work from home, trying to do school from home, it was it was a real problem. And there has been a real effort since then to get broadband Internet access 
across our states. And Illinois was uh, the focus of that. There's some American Rescue Plan money that is going to be coming our way so that we can have uh, areas uh, with Internet. I mean, even, frankly, some urban areas, some of the south and west sides of Chicago have a slow Internet or no Internet. And the Biden administration today approved two hundred fifty three point seven million dollars for broadband Internet access in the state of Illinois alone. Senators Durbin and uh, Tammy Duckworth were on hand for that, as was uh, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, uh, to talk about what this money is going to mean for the state of Illinois. Um, our Senator Durbin was uh, talking about how it's, you know, not just the south and west sides of Chicago, but there are rural parts of the state and um, that we need to really think about public infrastructure the way we did, you know, years ago when Franklin Roosevelt was president. This is what uh, Senator Durbin had to say. You can still run into people who remember their grandfathers and grandmothers telling the story about when electricity came to the American farm. It's back in the 1930s that President Franklin Roosevelt realized without electricity, Farmers and rural residents had no chance of being part of the 20th century economy. They brought electricity to the farms and created modern farming in the process. Now you see the same young people recounting their grandparents' story who are struggling to understand why they don't have access to the Internet. They realize it's important for their education. It's critical for keeping businesses and attracting new ones. That's why the American Rescue Plan is a plan for jobs and business creation and to give kids a fighting chance in a competitive world economy. I want to thank uh, President Biden and the administration for making this a priority in the American Rescue Plan. The $253 million that's coming to Illinois is going to mean that a lot of kids have a better, better chance for a good education. And a lot of businesses can thrive, and the farmers are going to be using those internets too. Absolutely. Senator Duckworth talked today about this uh, this couple hundred million coming to Illinois so that we can expand broadband into areas where there is little or no broadband. She also had a lot of praise for our governor, J.B. Pritzker. Listen to this. I am so proud to help announce that Illinois Works received this $253.6 million, um, which is going to be 100% of the state's total allocation and will serve an estimate 87,000 different locations. Um, and, and this would not be able to be as effective were it not for our great governor, Governor Pritzker, who uh, finally passed a budget after years um, uh, prior to his being elected, uh, where Illinois went without a budget, and his passing a capital, uh, a state capital project uh, plan. Um, critically important that Illinois had her ducks in order when the federal dollar started coming through. Um, the Capital Projects Fund allows recipients to invest in capital assets that meet communities' critical needs in both short and long-term projects. Um, I really like that it has a key emphasis on making funding available for broadband infrastructure. And as we've seen throughout the pandemic, we know that Internet access is crucial for public health, the success of small businesses, educating our children, improving the quality of life, and just so, so much more. Showing up for rural Illinois communities means making sure that every single Illinoisan has access to reliable electricity and broadband, no matter their zip code. Broadband is, we need to view it as a utility, just like we do electricity or water or sewers. 
And I agree with uh, Rick Smith, our evening host. Anytime something like this happens, there should be billboards put up and a, a, a smiling picture of Joe Biden pointing, saying, I did this. I did this. People have to make that connection that Democrats deliver. Democrats make people's lives better. Uh, this funding is supposed to uh, help connect an estimated 87,000 households and businesses around the state. Um, North Carolina and Indiana also got some of this money today. I don't have the details on their state. So, uh, Bobby, if you're still lis- still listening from Indiana, some of this money is uh, coming to Indiana as well. Let's hope that your legislature uh, m- makes makes the rural areas and the underserved areas a priority. Governor Pritzker, like I said, was also at this love fest <laughs> today, um, and he talked briefly about building a future in the state of Illinois. Listen to this. We are building a future where modernized infrastructure and connectivity are the norm, Uh, meeting the needs of every Illinoisan for learning, for working, for staying connected to everyone and everything around them. And this funding is a huge step forward, making that future our reality. So nice work. Democrats deliver. Democrats deliver. This is part of the American Rescue Plan. This is part of the amazing package of benefits for the people of this country that Joe Biden has been able to accomplish in his first two years as president. What's going to happen in the second two years? That's anybody's guess, because the Republicans have already begun uh, tearing each other apart. Should they vote for a new budget? Yes, no, yes, no. <sighs> Is Kevin McCarthy going to be the next speaker? He doesn't have the votes yet. <laughs> yes, I realize that the actual uh, vote to elect a speaker is coming pretty soon. Uh, McCarthy has um, has to win five votes. Um that he doesn't have right now. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know if the, I think, I think it's quite possible the house of representatives is just going to be so utterly chaotic that, um, that nothing gets done. I mean, the far right led in part by Andy Biggs is um, making it quite clear that they plan to make, Kevin McCarthy's path to the speaker, problematic at best, impossible at worst. There's been some talk, God help us, that Jim Jordan could end up as speaker. Whoa. Doesn't sound like a Congress that's going to get a lot done. But Joe Biden in his first two years, man, he cranked it. He absolutely cranked it out. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk more January 6th and other things when we come right back after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I have been uh, sharing with you a lot of sound that came during and after the January 6th committee had their last public hearing. 
They uh, summarized everything that they'd learned. And in other hearings, there was usually one or two of the Congress people who spoke. This time, everybody got to say their piece before Jamie Raskin um, talked about the four criminal offenses that they believed Trump was guilty of, that they were referring to the Department of Justice to decide if they wanted to pursue a criminal investigation. Our own Adam Kinzinger, who... um, is not going to be in the next Congress. He was talking about what happened before the insurrection. He talked about the big lie. He talked about how Bill Barr, if you remember during the Trump administration, Bill Barr was referred to by many as the great enabler. It was like Donald Trump would come to him with a bad idea And Bill Barr would try to figure out uh, the legality of at least trying to make an argument that sounded like it supported. You want a Muslim ban? We'll figure out a Muslim ban. (sighs) Bill Barr, as he was walking out the door, told Donald Trump repeatedly that there was no fraud. There was everything that they had looked into. It was a free and fair election There was no reason to think otherwise. To do so was basically lying to the American public. Adam Kinzinger uh, talked about that when he was given his chance at the mic today. Listen to this. In the weeks immediately following the 2020 election, Attorney General Bill Barr advised President Trump that the Department of Justice had not seen any evidence to support Trump's theory that the election was stolen by fraud. No evidence. Over the course of the three meetings in this post-election period, Attorney General Barr assured President Trump that the Justice Department was properly investigating claims of election fraud. He debunked numerous election fraud claims many of which the president would then go on to repeat publicly. And he made clear that President Trump was doing, quote, a great, great disservice to the country by pursuing them. After Attorney General Barr's resignation, President Trump requested that the acting leadership of the department, Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. In other words, just tell a small lie to put the facade of legitimacy on this lie. And the Republican congressman and I can distort and destroy and create doubt all ourselves. And remember, uh, Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue, they didn't like that idea. They didn't like the idea of um, putting their very reputations, their law licenses at risk by telling a lie that the president wanted them to tell to further his own ends. So imagine that. So what did uh, Donald Trump do? Well, you know, Donald Trump can always be counted on to do what is good for Donald Trump. You don't have to look at it through any other lens. He doesn't care about his family, doesn't care about his business, doesn't care about politics, doesn't care about parties, doesn't care about the Constitution, doesn't care about the rule of law, only what is best for Donald Trump in the here and now. 
So you've got all these people, Bill Barr on the way out saying, hey, you know what? You can't do that. It's not true. You shouldn't do that. It's a lie. The two people who took over for Bill Barr refused to tell even a tiny little lie. Just tell this tiny little lie just for me. Just for me, would you? No. So Donald Trump did what Donald Trump does. He decided to circumvent those people. That was the night he tried to install Jeffrey Clark. Jeffrey Clark, who most people inside the DOJ didn't respect as a man or a lawyer. He tried to install, actually for a few minutes, if you look at the White House logs, it'll say call from acting Attorney General Jeffrey Clark. So Donald Trump told somebody that this guy was the new AG. But the other folks in the room, the cooler heads, the White House lawyers and the DOJ lawyers, one of the lawyers with the DOJ had reached out to all the department heads across the country, the most senior people, and said, this is what's going on. I need to know right here, right now, what you would do if we are kicked to the curb and Jeffrey Clark is installed so that he can do this, send out this letter to state governments and try to screw up the election. There was only one DOJ department head that they couldn't reach. They reached every other one and they all said, we will, we will resign and we will resign immediately. And that was the power that the other side brought to bear in these discussions with Trump. Adam Kinzinger talked about how Trump tried to install uh, Jeffrey Clark. I want uh, you to listen to this part. On several occasions, Clark met with the president, apparently along with Representative Scott Perry, without authorization, promising to take the actions that Barr, Rosen, and Donahue had refused to take. In particular, Mr. Clark intended to send a letter that he had drafted with the help of a political appointee that the White House installed at DOJ with just weeks left in the administration. Mr. Clark intended to send the letter to officials in numerous states, informing them falsely, of course, that the department had identified significant concerns about the election results in their state and encouraging their state legislatures to come into special session to consider appointing Trump rather than Biden electors. Here's acting Deputy Attorney General Donahue describing his reaction to Mr. Clark's proposed letter. Some drafting letters without the knowledge of what the department had actually done in terms of investigations, that he was being reckless. And I recall toward the end saying, what you're proposing is nothing less than the United States Justice Department meddling in the outcome of a presidential election. Knowing that existing department leadership would not support his false election claims, President Trump offered Mr. Clark the job of acting attorney general. In a dramatic January 3rd meeting in the Oval Office, Rosen Donahue, White House counsel Pat Cipollone, and White House lawyer Eric Hirschman strongly objected to the appointment of Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general. Mr. Clark pleaded his case and offered to send the letter that he had drafted. The White House counsel called the Clark letter, quote, a murder-suicide pact. Numerous White House and Department of Justice lawyers all threatened to resign if Mr. Clark was appointed. 
Donald Trump would be leading a graveyard. It was only after the threat of mass resignations that President Trump rescinded his offer to Mr. Clark. One of the things the January 6th hearings brought home to me, I knew, I I watched the riot um, on January 6th. I saw it take place, you know, live on television. And that was horrific enough. But this January 6th committee finding out just how close we came to mob rule and the sycophants who were willing to do Trump's bidding no matter what, it's really terrifying. It's really and truly terrifying because that's the problem. You get somebody who's absolutely amoral. Donald Trump doesn't care about anything. He doesn't care about anything. Break any rule, break any law. All that matters is that he gets what he wants. And what is, if he were, if he were isolated, if there were people around him pushing back, as there sometimes were, then that kind of behavior can at least to some degree be contained. But when you've got somebody like a Jeffrey Clark, who's, you know, you want, you want me to do it? I'll do it. I, I figured out a way to do it. Look at me. You know, bring me into your inner circle. I'll do this for you. Those are the people that really frighten me. Because Donald Trump in and of himself can only do so much damage. He needs to have sycophants to really do damage, which is why, if you'll recall, when was it? It was earlier this year he said that if he were to be elected to the presidency again, he would basically get rid of everyone in government, not just get rid of the political appointees, but he would get rid of all the civil servants. He was said that he was going to replace everyone, every single position in every government agency. And the resume he was looking for, the litmus test that they were going to have to pass was that they were loyal to him. Not that they were knowledgeable, not that they were experienced, not that they were people of good character. The only thing he was looking for was loyalty. He made that clear. And that is what he will do. You know, will the DOJ act on these charges that have been recommended to them? I think they might. Will we see? Any kind of real satisfying conclusion, man, I wouldn't hold my breath. I, By all accounts, this Jack Smith is a tough cookie, but it doesn't seem like there's anybody who knows how to play the legal system like Donald Trump. Every maneuver, every delaying tactic, he's perfected them all, and I think he's invented a few of his own. So we'll see.
We will be here tomorrow to talk to you about the news of the day. Also want to let you know it's time to get out your calendars again. You know I like to keep you abreast of dates you need to pay attention to. January 26th at noon, WCPT is going to be holding a mayoral forum Thursday, January 26th. Um, It's going to be downtown, but we are going to broadcast it live on the radio. I'll be there. Santita Jackson will be there. Patty Vasquez will be there. It is going to be from noon to one right here on WCPT. We're going to hear from Lori Lightfoot and uh, some of the opposition candidates who would like to take her job. It uh, it'll be very interesting and it'll be a very, very much fun. And I hope that you will make a note of that. January 26th. It is a Thursday. Noon to one. Be here. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night.